Welcome. Welcome to a new podcast of CUNO. And CUNO is the platform for humanitarian knowledge exchange in the Netherlands. My name is Peter Heinz and I am the coordinator of CUNO. This podcast offers a reflection on humanitarian ethics. And it is based on the introduction of a masterclass organized by CUNO and the Netherlands Red Cross. And the master of this masterclass is Hugo Slim. And he is author of the book Humanitarian Ethics, a guide to a reality of aid in war and disaster. Hugo Slim has an impressive career. He combined a career in the academic world and in humanitarian practice. He worked, among others, for Save the Children and the United Nations in countries like Morocco, Sudan, Ethiopia, the Palestine Territories and Bangladesh. Furthermore, he was Senior Research Fellow at the University of Oxford. And nowadays he is Head of Policy of the International Committee of the Red Cross and he is based in Geneva. For the next 30 minutes you can listen to Hugo Slim and he will bring a compact, appealing and thoughtful introduction on the nature of humanitarian ethics. Enjoy. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, it's a pleasure to, to be in, in the Netherlands and in The Hague. Um, and it's a pleasure to be thinking with you all this afternoon about humanitarian ethics and about your work, really. I thought I would just start, though, by going through and giving a general framework of how I see humanitarian ethics, which may help us as we think a bit later. And thank you for asking me to do something called a masterclass, which is terribly um, frightening if, uh, if you don't think you're a master. And I'm a very accidental master. I think it's quite right if Alex Duval comes and gives a talk. It should certainly be a masterclass. But I'm really an accidental ethicist because um, I'm not a professional ethicist. I didn't study philosophy particularly and focus on ethics as an academic. Um, but it goes back to 1997, um, around the time of the post-Rwanda genocide time and the time of Goma, the first big dilemmas around the communities and the refugee populations in Goma. Um, and the, I think it was the um, Swedes at the time were part of this big international evaluation of the, Rwandan, the response to the Rwandan genocide. And they decided as part of that process to convene a meeting, and one of the papers they wanted was on the ethical aspects and ethical dilemmas in the humanitarian response. And nobody could identify an ethicist in the humanitarian community, and nobody knew what to do with this paper and this invitation. And eventually I got rung up by someone at ODI, and they said, Hugo, didn't, didn't you read theology at university? Didn't you do theology? And I said, yeah, I did. And they said, well, well that's ethics, isn't it? Can, can you write this paper? And so I said, well, I'll try. So I then wrote a paper, which then um, became quite useful, I think, and popular. And so then I fell into ethics. And then eventually, a few years later, um, somebody said, why, why don't you write a book now? Because we haven't really got a book. So that's what I tried to do. So just to say, um, if I am not masterful this afternoon, that's because I'm an accidental ethicist and um, <laughs> fell into it by accident. So what I thought I would, would do is take us through a few points. But what I'd like to say first is that I do think um, that in our profession, in humanitarian action, there is actually a, a really big 
increase in sophistication around discussing ethical issues. Over the last 10, 20 years, um, people have been able to come out, if you like, and talk ethics more easily in meeting rooms to identify problems which they feel are ethical. And a whole lot of work has been done on that from Fiona Terry's book to the MSF compilation on negotiations revealed to um, Rubenstein's work and other areas of work. So we have a lot more now that, in a sense, is a literature and public thinking on what we want to call humanitarian ethics. I want to go through about six or seven aspects of humanitarian ethics, and that the first one is to think about what, what is our ethics. When we talk about humanitarian ethics, what sort of body of ethics are we talking about? And I think it's important to realise that we are talking about a mixture of ethics. We have this thing called the humanitarian imperative. So we are very determined um, in a deontological way, as you might say, that there are some things that are absolutely and always important. And that, of course, is really the principle of humanity, the um, absolute value of a human life and of the dignity of that human life. And that, in a sense, is our deontological part. And our second real commitment, our real value that makes it an absolute and always important thing for us is impartiality. The fact that we must value that humanity in everyone, everywhere. So that means we have to respond to every population and all people and only on the basis of need. We don't discriminate on any other ground like politics or religion or whatever. So those two things give us our deontological values and ethics. But we also realise, and we also know as practical people, um, that we can't cover everything. We can't save every life, help every wounded person, cure every sick person. But we realise we want to do that for as many people as possible. So we do have quite a consequentialist, utilitarian element to our ethics as well, which says numbers matter. It is important to have volume in this thing. So we would say, no, it would be wrong to spend so much time and money on just 10 people. If there were another 100 there, we could reach. So we care about numbers as well. We also care about virtues in terms of ethics, virtues. We care about being a certain way with people, treating people in a certain way. Um, and we care about being wise and seeing things clearly and making good judgments. So there is a virtues aspect to humanitarian ethics as well. And we also care about care. We also care about caring so we have a, a care ethics as well, because a lot of our humanitarian work is informed by caring professions, whether they're medical or social. Um, and therefore, we have an ethics about caring for the individual and expressing humanity interpersonally. And again, that means we live in tension with big numbers, absolutes, and the need to care and have what we in ICRC call proximity and relationship. And we've structured all this into a principles-based framework of ethics. 
We didn't have to. We could have just made one golden rule, you know, save the maximum number of lives in any situation. That's humanitarian ethics. We didn't do that. We mixed it all up into a principles-based framework. And when I counted for this book about how many principles and sort of ethical commandments we have, we've gone way above Moses, who settled for 10 commandments. And the last time I counted, we have 33 principles that are very important. And they go through from humanity, impartiality, whatever, to accountability, participation, value for money, efficiency, effectiveness, um, you know, etc., etc., being a good employer, all these things. So we have set ourselves an enormous task as humanitarians, a great ethical universe uh, where we want to be good. So that's the first thing to say. Our ethics is a mixture. I think the most profound thing about our ethics, I, I always feel, is that it is, as I say, a teleology of person, not politics. So we are only ever concerned, our goal from the Greek word telos is only the person. We are not concerned with creating the ideal political system. We are not concerned with the way government and governance is organized to deliver that. We are concerned with the human person and many persons. And that is the core of our ethics, in a sense. Now, the second point I want to make is, well, what resources do we have to do ethics with? How, do we, um, how can we decide what is right and wrong, what is good and bad? And I think at our disposal we have um, a few resources. We have our reason as human beings. We can use our reason to work out what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. We know that. And there's a long tradition of trying to reason out what is right and wrong. But we also have our emotion. We feel things. And there's no doubt we feel ethics, that we are a sentient ethical creature, not just a rational, calculating machine ethical creature. And I think emotions are very important. And I think, on the whole, when we're faced with an ethical problem, it's often our emotions that prompt us first. And I think we should always listen to that emotional prompt in any ethical decision, because it's helpful. And um, David Hume, the great Scotsman, um, would always say that ethics, ethical decision-making is based on a, a mixture of emotion and reason and trying to work out what our emotions are telling us and work out what the best reasonable thing to do on the basis of our emotions is. The third thing we have is sort of habit. Um, we, we have ethical habits, things that work well for us, sort of rules of thumb that we tend to think are good ethical rules. And we develop habits as organizations, as individuals, about what is right and wrong. And we also have precedent, so we have history. Um, you know, we can discuss these examples today, but we could go back and find several of them in World War I in Europe. We could find them in the 90s in Africa, in the 90s in the Balkans. We would find similar things. So we have precedent, like lawyers, if you like, and we have um, the ability to um, look at history and think about it retrospectively and reflectively. And we have conscience, which is close to emotion, but we have conscience when um, we begin to feel really bad if we're doing something or we begin to feel relaxed if we're doing something. And that is usually our conscience speaking in that old religious way. 
And, of course, we have law. We do have international humanitarian law. We have a lot of human rights law. We have domestic law when it comes to domestic issues of employ- as an employer or whatever. So we have law which is there to um, guide us because we assume that law is a set of rules which has been reasoned out reasonably and sensibly and ethically um, by other generations, other people. So we have those resources, reason, emotion, um, habit, precedence, conscience, and law. And then the biggest resource we have is deliberation. We have the important ability and necessity of discussing these problems with other people. So we don't just go away like a single computer in our head and try and work out what the rational, ethical thing is to do. One of the best ways to make an ethical, a good ethical decision is by discussing it with people, because people experience the problem in different ways. So deliberation is very, very important, and many organisations make time for it in operational time. What should we do? What's the right thing to do? I think we need to work with many communities to deliberate as well with them. What's important to you here? How do you see the problem? What would be best for you? Etc. So deliberation is an enormous resource. We don't want to bureaucratise deliberation. We want to try and keep it human and crisp and um, relational. So if that's the resources and the values and the ethics we have, what, what context do we do ethics in as humanitarian agencies? And this is where it gets very disappointing, really. Because it's true, in fact, that our ethical reality is a deeply imperfect reality. Um, We are asking ourselves and other people to go into very difficult situations and help people living through very difficult situations. Um, Often where human behavior is at its worst as well as at its best. And therefore, our ethical reality is often deeply problematic and it is, I think, distinguished by us as humanitarian agencies having very imperfect power. This is a Kantian phrase, you know. We have imperfect power or perfect power over a situation. We often have seriously imperfect power over a situation. We cannot control everything that's happening. We cannot control the decision-making. We do not have responsibility for everything that's going on. Other people are making the big strategic decisions that create the ethical problems. Warring parties, communities themselves, people themselves trying to survive, and often governments who are investing in humanitarian work, donors who are financing and setting policy, and other governments supporting warring parties. So our power is often quite limited in strategic terms in our ethical reality. So we often, we can say that the situations we work in, they're mostly imperfect situations where we are faced with non-ideal choices, choices which we would never want to be faced with. And our options in those choices are often not ideal. And a choice is something that's made up of one, two or three options. You know, you, you have to choose one or two or three or four options. And often the options are not very good, um, the way the choice is structured. 
And I think, therefore, we can say that our ethical reality is often um, dominated by ambiguity. Um, the choices we have are not easy to see. Um, what's the best thing, what's the worst thing to do is often not clear. And we are making decisions often in high levels of ambiguity about what is happening now and what will happen when we've made a decision. The next thing I want to say about ethics generally is that it's not mathematics, by which I mean um, you don't tend to get simple and singular answers. So if I say in mathematics um, 1 plus 1 equals 2 or 2 plus 2 equals 4, it always does, and there is a right answer to that. But in ethics... One plus one could equal two, it could equal three, it could equal four, it could equal five, because there are often many possible answers in ethics. Um, there are often things you could do and you could find a reason why that was right. You can justify it, you can explain it. And that's why in many humanitarian situations, you might get um, you know, MSF staying and Oxfam leaving, or the UN staying and MSF leaving, or different ethical, out, different outcomes, because the choices are legitimately, very often, made differently. The same problem delivers a different answer for different agencies. And I do think that's true. That's true in our personal lives. We know usually we are forced to choose from a variety of answers, um, and we have to work hard to think about why we chose that answer. So... It's not usually the question of a right answer, singular. It's usually the question of agreeing on one of the right answers, plural. And the next thing I want to say is that if that's true, that there's no single answer usually, but we can say that there is a clear right way to do ethics. And I think there are some simple rules that we need to define our purpose what are we trying to achieve in a situation? What is our purpose? Um, we then need to deliberate. I do think that if you haven't deliberated, even in your own mind, in a quick situation or whatever, if you haven't given it due deliberation, you are failing in, in ethics. We have to deliberate. And then I think we have a clear obligation to ourselves and to other people to explain our ultimate choices. Um, so we have to explain why we did that and not that. And I think those you know, three things are important, to define the purpose. So what is our goal? What are we trying to achieve? And what is rightly our goal? Um, what is the difficult context we're faced with? How do we understand the choice, deliberate about it, and explain it? And then there is always an obligation on us to mitigate the worst effects of our choice. Because no choice is usually a perfect answer, there will be problems left and created by the choice we make. If we close down that clinic, which is for a good reason, it leaves problems of another kind. We must work out how to mitigate those problems. So that's, I think, important to say that there's not a single answer to ethical problems usually, but there is a single important way to do ethics responsibly as an organisation, as an individual. Just very quickly going through, I, I sort of counted, and in my book, and 
generally I tend to find around 14 or 15 problem areas for humanitarian ethics. And I'll just whiz through them quickly. Equity, what's fair, what's equal. Indirect harm, the risk we might make things worse rather than better. Direct harm, the fact that sometimes as humanitarian organisations and workers we can be horrible, we can damage people, we can hurt people. Paternalism, attitude, what's the right attitude for a powerful outsider with less powerful insiders? Um, Incomparable values, the so-called problems of apples and oranges. You know, I've got a choice here. Shall I favour women's education or food security? They're both really good things. Which good thing shall I choose because I'm only being allowed one somehow? Um, Professional personal clash, the fact that some of us might ethically disagree with what our organisation is asking us to do. What do we do with that? Entry and exit dilemmas. You know, when's, when should I go into that place? Is that a good place to go into? Or is there a better place to enter? When do I leave? How do I leave well? Complicity and associational problems. Working with greater powers than us. Working with others. The problems of joint enterprise. When you're always somehow constrained by the weakest member of a coalition of some kind. You know, if you're all dependent on a joint operation to help a community, um, the weakest member can really screw you up if they're not delivering and they compromise you. Um, Moral damage that can happen to us, that people in our team, people in the community can be damaged morally by a decision they feel is terrible or things they're being asked to do that they feel are wrong or or whatever. The, The endless problem of humanitarian lives... How should we prioritise our lives as humanitarians compared to people um, who are hungry, who are sick, who are in need of protection? How do we prioritise humanitarian lives over civilian lives and find a balance? Um, And then accountability, of course. Um, How much do we need to be explicitly accountable to people we are helping and people that are giving us money? And then finally, questions around silence and speaking and advocacy and quietness and all those things. Those are what I usually find to be common areas. And if we look at those, um, it tends to present seven types of choice. Um, You tend to be faced with seven types of choice. The first one is the one you always want because it's the easiest. It's an obvious choice. That you've got a choice between A and B. A is obviously better, so you ought to do A, not B. You can see everything, you can understand, it's like a food assessment, that lot's really hungry, that lot isn't, we'll do that. That's the dream, doesn't often happen. Um, Usually you can have a certain choice that you're going to make, you're going to definitely do that, but you realise that choice comes with losses. So that's a compromise. You realise that you're going to get some of the things that you know are good and you want, but there'll be a trade and you won't, you'll lose important good things as well. So we often compromise in humanitarian ethics, and compromise is a good thing, because often it's all you can do. But there has to be a sort of balance of good things in a compromise, otherwise it becomes a rotten compromise, and you're probably being exploited in some way. The third kind of choice is a very uncertain choice, which is veiled. You, You just can't see what will happen. You can't see entirely the facts about that community. You can't anticipate entirely the reaction of that warring party or that community leader. Um, It's very difficult because it's like seeing through a veil. You don't see everything. And um, it's what moral philosophers call 
an epistemic veil. You're having to look through things you don't know. You can't know things clearly, but you've still got to make the choice. That's very common. And the other one that's very common is similar to that. It's a slippery slope problem. That if you agree to do something now that seems the best thing to do at the moment, will it set you on a very slippery slope downwards? And the classic example of that is paying at the checkpoint. Where you pay at a checkpoint once, does that mean everyone's going to have to start paying? You're starting a new culture. It's going to be a problem. The sixth one is dirty hands. When is it right to do, to do the wrong thing to achieve the right thing? When is it right to be Oskar Schindler and deliberately deceive the Nazis, um, play a double game, um, be dishonest, and save 1,500 Jewish people? When's that right? I think quite often it is right, actually, but it's very difficult to say it and recommend it as a strategy. Um, and you've got to be very careful, because with governments, if you get found out doing that once, then you're dead to many other governments around the world once you've, in a sense, been exposed as playing with dirty hands once. And then lastly, tragic choices, choices which are just horrendous choices because whatever you do, you won't be able to do the other thing or you're going to get caught up in something terrible. And that's like a major moral dilemma where there seems nothing good to come out of any decision you might make. Um, lastly, I'm just going to think briefly to set the scene about responsibility. You know, what are we responsible for? Because we don't have perfect power in most situations, unless we're the employer or something. Um, what are our responsibilities? Um, we have to think about our intentions. We have to really always be honest about our intention. What is our intention here? Um, and we must be honest to ourselves and others about that. You know, we are here to feed and protect people or whatever. Um, we're here because it's the hardest place to be, and we really want to work in the hardest place, even though we could work in an easier place. We're trying to work in the hardest place. Um, we need to think about the kinds of agencies we have. You know, when do we really have direct agency? Um, and when are we really just dependent on other people's agency? When are we doing things voluntarily and of our own free will, and when are we being coerced and forced to do something? Because that reduces our moral responsibility. Um, we need to think about the knowledge and ignorance we have in any situation. You know, what can we really know? What do we know now? And what should we have known? And what are we responsible for not knowing? When, is, when were we negligent about finding out things uh, which we should have known? And we need to think about realistically what is our capacity? Because, you know, if... if um, if we walk out into the street now and ten people are beating up one person and it's just me or it's just you, we don't necessarily have the capacity to go in there and save that person. We'll probably get killed in the process. So we don't have the capacity to solve that problem. We shouldn't be responsible for saving that person right then. Um, but we do have the capacity to ring the police, to take some other action that we could deal with. So we have different levels of capacity as well. Mitigation, as I said, we must always mitigate the worst effects of our actions and we must always deliberate. You are not being ethically responsible if you are not thinking things through. And therefore, just to conclude, I think that's the context, that's the kind of ethics we have. Those are the resources we have to do ethics. Those are the typical kinds of problems. We can sort of recognize them as problem types and we've met them before. And 
we have to think about our responsibility in a situation and what we can do and what we can't do. Um, and who else is responsible for these difficult things? Um, and I think we therefore have to learn to live with imperfection in humanitarian ethics. We are often going to be disappointed by the decisions we have to make. They won't be fully satisfying. Sometimes they will. We must always be committed to explain them to our own staff, to people who are going to suffer or benefit from them. And we must explain them to ourselves as well. Otherwise, we will always have a certain amount of moral anxiety about why we did this, should we have done something else. So I'll leave that there as a scene setter, and we can now work out which case studies you want to do and how. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Kuno, and please forward the link of this podcast to anybody who might be interested. And on the website of Kuno, you will find all the podcasts, all our humanitarian dilemmas and ethical dilemmas of humanitarian action. Until next time, 